It's good to uh, see everyone this morning, <clears throat> both here in the worship center and uh, via the online worshipers. We're looking forward to the day when we'll all be back together again to worship corporately as we, uh, as we look forward to the end of this uh, problem with this virus. Turn with me, please, to the book of Habakkuk. It's the fifth book from the end of the Old Testament, Habakkuk. How many of you have uh, recently read Habakkuk? One, two, three. Well, Joyce has read it, of course, because she had to, being my wife. Um, I'm assuming there's about two or three other people who have read Habakkuk uh, who are watching online, and so I'm more restricted now. I don't get to say whatever I want about Habakkuk because you know something about what it says. Uh, that's a, a, a minor comment, a minor joke, but actually there's a, lot, a principle of truth in what I just said. Because actually those who have the opportunity to teach God's word fall under a stricter judgment. Uh, James 3.1 warns us that not many of you should become teachers because they will fall under a stricter judgment. And so I'm fully aware of the expectations God has on those who have the opportunity and the privilege to speak his word. Um, and that's one reason why we so appreciate Pastor Lucas and his family who are so faithful in their service to us. And Lucas so faithfully teaches the scripture to us and, and takes it very seriously as he makes every effort to study week after week. We're glad that he has an opportunity to take a little break here from that awesome responsibility. Habakkuk means one who embraces, which is a profoundly appropriate name for this prophet, one who embraces, because he faces a challenge of not embracing the Lord and not clinging to the Lord. He faces difficult circumstances. He is a prophet in the kingdom of Judah. You may recall that after Israel broke apart, it broke apart into two kingdoms after the reign of King Solomon. One was Judah and one was Israel. Interestingly, Judah is the kingdom that had more good kings who followed the Lord. Israel had fewer kings who followed the Lord. But Habakkuk is a prophet speaking for God to the people in Judah, and he is very vexed. He is challenged to keep embracing the Lord in frustration, in confusion, as we'll see from the text. I want to tell you exactly where I'm going with this text that I believe God has shown us through his word what he wants us to learn. I want to do that right up front so that you'll know and not be confused as we go through the process, and I'll remind you as we go through it. But here's my main proposition, and here is what I believe is the main point of the book of Habakkuk. God is a sovereign king. He is the sovereign king. God is free. God is free. He's not free to sin because it's against his nature to sin. He cannot sin. It's not possible for him to sin. But he's free to use sinners, as we will see from this book. He uses sin sinlessly. God is a sovereign king. He's not like us. He is a sovereign king, and he is free. And God is worthy of our trust and our devotion. He's worthy of our trust and our devotion. God is a sovereign king, and God is free. He is worthy of our trust and our devotion. And as I was reading and studying Habakkuk, I recalled taking my younger son, our younger son, swimming when he was about two and a half. And I was in the deeper end of the pool. And by the way, my young son had no choice about going swimming that day. I said, okay, we're going swimming. I was the sovereign king in that case as a picture. We're going swimming. You're going to put on this bathing suit. You're going to put little floaties on your arms. Remember those for the little ones, little floaties so they could float on the water? And I'm in the water, and he's standing there, and I'm in the water, and I said, um, Matthew, jump to me. And he looked at me. He's, remember, he's just a little guy, two and a half years old, approximately. And I said, come on. And he, he looked at me, and he, was, he kind of smiled, and he wasn't sure but he jumped, and I said, before he jumped, I said, Dad will catch you. I'll catch you. Don't worry. I will catch you. That's a picture, a bit of a picture, a small image of what God does for us and what he wants from us. We're going to see Zach, uh, uh, Habakkuk uh, in confusion and in difficulty as he sees the sinning people of Judah, and he asks God certain questions. 
Before we jump into the specifics of the text, let me pray. Father, I thank you that we are able to gather today. I thank you for these faithful people both here in the worship center and those who are joining online via Zoom. I thank you, Lord, that we have been granted the ability to do this in these difficult days, these days of confusion and wonder at what is happening in our nation and in our world. And But Lord, we know as you teach us through this wonderful book that you are the great king, that you are sovereign, you are free, and you are worthy of our trust and our devotion, Lord. And I ask you, as we look through this book, that you would guard my mouth, that you would give me the right words to say as we consider this book, and that we faithfully come forth with right thinking and right living as we go through this time together. Lord, we thank you for this privilege in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just read the first four verses of Habakkuk. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. An oracle was simply a vision given from God to the prophet who was going to speak God's truth to the people. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. So remember Habakkuk, the prophet in the kingdom of Judah, is looking at the people of Judah, the people who are supposed to love God, and he says, How long will I cry to you for help, Lord? How long is it going to take? And I want you to notice that the great man Habakkuk asks the same questions that ordinary people like you and I would ask. He's not beyond asking questions like this. How long will I cry for help and you will not hear? He's presuming that God is not hearing. You notice that? He says, you're not hearing me. If you heard me, you would answer me. How human and ordinary is that? How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. The fruit of this action or inaction is that the law is paralyzed. It's an interesting term, paralyzed. The original Hebrew word indicates a numbness that might come when you're freezing and your hands are cold. Have you ever been in a situation where your hands are so cold they do not work right? I was in a, uh, a circumstance many, many years ago now where I, was, I came upon an accident scene in the dead of winter. It was at night. It was cold. It was in an open area. It was very windy and there was a snowstorm and it was really cold. There was a car accident and a person died. And I was on the scene And I had winter clothes on, but I was outside talking to the police. I had a pen and a paper, and I was writing some things down. And I was shaking, and my hands were so cold, they would not write. In fact, it was so cold, the ink in my pen froze. That's how cold it was, and that's what the picture is here. Things are so bad, he says... I'm looking at all this iniquity. You are standing and not answering, Lord, and there's destruction and violence before me, strife and contention. It's awful. It's terrible, and nothing happens. This is happening, Lord, and nothing happens under the law. It's paralyzed. It's freezing cold. It's numb. Justice does not go forth, and what he's talking about is justice in accordance with God's law. It doesn't get answered. The application of God's law is not present. Well, there is a certain... um, Uh, application of law. It's just not God's law. Look at what he says. The wicked, second half of verse 4, the wicked surround the righteous. The righteous. The wicked surround them, and justice goes forth perverted. Well, there is a certain justice, justice that is going forth. It's just perverted. It's twisted. It's wrong. The wicked are very strong, 
in Habakkuk's time. And these are among the people of Judah. He's really, really frustrated. And notice he asks why questions. Why? Why? You're idle. Why? Why? And notice God's answer in verse 5. And notice he's not angry at Habakkuk. He's not angry at... And remember, he's a prophet. He knows better. But he's a prophet. He's just like you and me in many ways as a human being. He's a prophet, and yet he still asks these why questions, and God is not angry with him. He answers. But I want you to notice that he does not explain why. And oftentimes, God does not explain why. I want to give you a couple of of, of illustrations of this from other sections of the Scripture. You don't have to turn here, but Jeremiah 12, uh, and we're going to look at one in the New Testament, and this we're going to look in the Old Testament, where the prophet Jeremiah says in in, uh, chapter 12, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? How many times have you asked that question? I've asked that question. Why, Lord? You plant them and they take root, they grow, produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. These are possibly religious people who speak of God but have no relationship with him in their heart. And he says in verse 3, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. That's not very nice, is it? He says, pull them out so you can slaughter them, Lord. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. He says, how long... Will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? How long, Lord? Why and how long? This is an interesting picture. Psalm 74 um, uh, indicates that the psalmist in Psalm 74 is so frustrated and he talks about how God is idly standing by. And he, he says that, God, in effect, you are standing there with your hands in your pocket or your hands in your robe and you're watching all this and you're just watching. And the prophet and the psalmist are so frustrated they they are really, really having a hard time understanding. Remember, Habakkuk means one who embraces. He's being challenged. He doesn't want to embrace God at this point. He wants to be frustrated. He is frustrated. And notice what God says to him. (laughs) Jeremiah expresses this frustration, and here's God's answer in verse 5. Jeremiah 12, 5. He says, If you have raced with men on foot, and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? Okay, I don't understand that answer. Notice he doesn't say why, but he's talking about Jeremiah. He's talking about Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, I hear your frustration. He's not angry. He's not, he's not unhappy with Jeremiah. Jeremiah is just a man. He's a prophet, but he's just a man. If you have raced with men on foot, Jeremiah, and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Jeremiah, I have greater things I want from you. I want you to grow up, Jeremiah. I want you to be bigger than this why question. You have to trust me, is what he's saying. If you've raced with men and you're tired of doing this, I want you to compete against horses. If men are too fast for you, Jeremiah, What are you going to do when I put you against a horse to run the spiritual race? And if you're so naive and so trusting and so expecting of things here on earth, what will you do when I put you in the thicket of the Jordan River, which is really difficult? You notice he doesn't say why. He doesn't owe us an explanation of why. There's a better question than why. Same thing goes uh, for Jesus' answer in Luke chapter 13. Again, you don't have to turn there, but listen, Luke 13, where the people are questioning Jesus, and they're, they're talking to him about different circumstances, and he says in, in Luke 13, 1, he says, um, there were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, they told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate has mingled, had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, Jesus was from Galilee, uh, the region in Palestine. That's where Jesus grew up. He, he's from Galilee. He may have known these people whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, meaning that Pilate had them killed. The soldiers killed these Jewish people while they were sacrificing to God. In the midst of their worship, they were killed. And you can bet they were wondering why and what Jesus was going to say about it. But listen to Jesus' answer. He does not say why this has been allowed or caused by God. And this cuts at the heart of what some of us think about those who suffer. Have you ever thought this way? That those who suffered some terrible loss, well, they have done something. They deserve what they got. God is judging them. Well, we don't know that. Listen to what he says. 
Jesus says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, he's not saying that they're all going to die in the midst of sacrificing. What he's saying is they must repent of their sin and become into, come into a relationship with God or they're going to die in their sins and be lost. See, he doesn't say why these people suffered in this way. He says, you better watch your heart so you don't judge them. Do you think they're worse than other Galileans? No. Look at your own heart and see where you are, he says. You're all going to die apart from God unless you repent. Verse 4, or these 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? No, he says, they weren't worse offenders. Unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. You're going to perish in your sins unless you repent. Leave the decision of who lives and who dies to me, he's saying. You worry about your own repentance. God often does not ask why. The best questions are who and what. The best questions we can ask God are who and what. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? Throughout Habakkuk, throughout the scriptures, people are always being pushed by God to learn who he is. Out of learning who he is springs everything else. Out of learning who he is springs the question, what do you want me to do? What do you want of me? What can I do, Lord, that you want of your people? All of those things that we think about spring from the question of who are you, Lord? This is the crisis that Habakkuk is facing. God is not going to answer the question why. Look what he says, though. Here's God's answer, and he's not angry. He says to Habakkuk, and this is where Habakkuk, it's like a punch to his face. God says to Habakkuk, Habakkuk 1, verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Now, the Chaldeans is just another name for the Babylonians. Pagan people, you're going to see later on in this section how terrible they are. They are the worst. And Habakkuk was stunned by his answer. It's as though you have the virus and you pray to God and ask him questions about having the virus and getting better and so on, and then he answers you and says, okay, now you've got malaria. Okay, now I've got malaria. That's not what I was thinking your response would be, Lord. Are you kidding me? You're raising up the Chaldeans. They're worse than the people I'm complaining about. They're worse than the people of Judah. They're horrible people. Look what God says about them. They're a bitter and hasty nation. They mar- they're violent. They march through the breadth of the earth all over the place. They steal things. They, steal- they seize dwellings. They're dreaded and fearsome. They're ju- their justice, he says, not my justice, but their justice, their version of justice and dignity goes forth from themselves. It springs up from themselves, whatever they want. They don't give two rips about God. Their horses are swift, swifter than leopards. They're powerful. They're fierce. Their horsemen are they're proud. They're, they press proudly on. They're filled with themselves. They come from afar, from long distances. They fly like eagles, and they're swift to devour things and people. They're swift to devour. They all come for violence, and all of their faces are forward. They're aggressive. They're aggressive. Faces forward, pitching in, and everybody's terrorized. They press forward. They gather captives like sand. You grab a handful of sand. How many thousands or hundreds of thousands of grains of sand can you grab in one hand? That's what they do. They gather captives like sand. They're horrible. They, They scoff at kings. At kings, they scoff. Ha! Who cares about kings? Look at us, we're so powerful, and they laugh at rulers. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth, and they take every fortress. Meaning, they pile up earth, meaning if there's a fortress with a wall, they'll pile up earth so that they can climb over the wall, have enough height to climb over the wall, and take it. 
And then after they take it, they sweep by like the wind, and they go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. They're idolatrous. They're horrible. And that's who God is using to bring the people of Judah back to him. (laughs) You can imagine Habakkuk's amazement, consternation, confusion. One who embraces God in the midst of all these difficulties. Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? He's responding to the frustration and the confusion by reminding himself of who God is. Who are you, Lord? Not why. Now he's getting down to it. And he's reminding himself what he knows of God. You're from everlasting, he says. I know that. Oh, Lord, that's the personal relationship. Yahweh, Lord, the capital L-O-R-D. Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One. I have this relationship with you, Lord. I know we shall not die. Meaning, Judah will not be destroyed. That's a principle from Scripture, by the way. You can check it out in other places of Scripture. God disciplines his people not to destroy them, but to, to bring them back. He's not, he doesn't want to destroy us. His people, he wants to bring them back into a closer relationship with him. And that's Habakkuk's confidence. He recalls and remembers who God is, and he leans into that so he can really embrace who God is. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. He's understanding. They have been ordained by God, set up by God, as a judgment against the wickedness of the people of Judah. And you, O rock, rightly said, have established them for reproof that we may be corrected, is what he's saying, a reproof against us. You who are of pure horizon to see evil and cannot look at wrong, uh-oh, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Again, he's going back to the why question. You're going to see the Lord's answer. And he talks, we're not going to go through every verse in this section, but he talks about, again, how wicked people do wicked things. Sinners are sinning. Some sin more than others. <laughs> Talking about idolatry in verse 16. They're so strong, they're so impressive in their own hearts and minds. Uh, this person who's an idolatrous one sacrifices to his net. Because why? Because the net is what gave him all these fish. I've collected all these things, and so my net must be the great cause of all these things. So I'm going to make an offering to my net, to my dragnet. How stupid is that? For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Is this going to go on forever? How long? Maybe you're asking the same question about whatever challenges you have in your life. How long am I going to have to endure this? How long? I want you to know that when Habakkuk heard from God and God told him what he was going to do and through whom he was going to do it, it was decades before it was executed by God. God didn't say, okay, I'm going to do this and next next Saturday it's going to happen. Five days from now or tomorrow. No, no. It was like 40 years. God told Habakkuk what he would do and then Habakkuk waited and waited, and waited. Many decades, 40 or 50 years he had to wait. Look at uh, Habakkuk's response to this second complaint he has raised and God's answer. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Ooh, that's the right thing to do, Habakkuk. I've said to God what I'm concerned about, what I'm worried about. I've said to God my frustration and why he does these things, and I've reminded myself of who he is and how faithful he is, and I'm recalling his goodness, and I'm recalling the fact that God disciplines his people for correction, not for destruction. Those who don't know the Lord... They may be destroyed utterly, but God's people are to be disciplined for their own good, not for destruction. He takes a stand as a wa- at a watch post, like a man at a watch post, and a 
he stations himself as a tower. And so he's going to sit and wait, which is a good thing to do. He sits and he waits and he watches to see what God is going to say to him. And as he's watching and waiting, God answers. Chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord says, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets. So he may run who reads it. Now, stop there for a second. God's answering the question. And again, he doesn't explain why. But he says, here's what I'm going to do. I want you to write what I'm telling you on tablets. And you're going to post them so that a person who's even walking by quickly can see it plainly. It's going to be clear. No confusion, Habakkuk. Make it plain on tablets. It's not going to be tenuous or um, uncertain. It's not going to be something I'm going to say to you and, and you're going to deliver to people and they're going to forget because you're going to write it on tablets so they won't forget. Even somebody who's running by the tablets will be able to see it and quickly get a grip on what I'm going to do. For still, the vision awaits its appointed time. It, has, it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Remember I said to you that it's decades later that the actual the vision and the, uh, uh, the arrival and the use of the Chaldeans to punish Judah is decades away. And yet God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to tell you why exactly, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use these awful people, really awful people, to punish my awful people. The real awful people are going to punish the awful people who are my own. Be patient as he decides when to execute his judgment. Wait for it. It will not lie. It seems slow. You're going to wait for it. It will surely come. There's no doubt about it. And in our context, you know what? We know that Jesus is coming back. We know that whatever happens to us in our culture, in our country, in our world, we have confidence that God is still sovereign king, and he is good, and he is all-powerful, and he is able, and he is worthy of our trust and our devotion. Verse 4. This is a very famous verse, verse 4 of chapter 2. Listen to this, and you'll recall this. Uh, uh, he talks about the soul, the proud soul. Behold, his soul is puffed up. Pride, proud. It's puffed up. It is not upright within him. Here it is. But the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, it should, and I'm sure it does. Because the concept of righteous living by faith is repeated three times in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, the righteous will live by faith. Galatians 3.11, the righteous will live by faith. Hebrews 10.38, the righteous will live by faith. What is faith? Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen for by it, men and women of old were justified. Justified by faith, not by sight. Wait for it, Habakkuk. Wait for it, fill in your own name. Wait for it. God is good. God is king. God is sovereign. The nations are as nothing to him. Our job is to be faithful and to ask the who question. Who are you, Lord? Who, that's the primary question. Not the why. Now, there are some cases where you might want to ask why, and that's okay. But the primary question of life is the who question. And then secondarily, what do you want of me? Let's skip on to uh, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. He's going to run through five woes that are going to happen to the Chaldeans. Five woes. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Stealing, greed. Those who are, who are thieves and are greedy are going to have woe. The Chaldeans in particular he's talking about. They're so vicious. They steal and they're greedy. They're going to get woe, which is a severe grief. A woe. When, when God says woe unto you or Jesus says woe unto you, that's a, a really severe level of grief that they can expect. Just like it's not even a question of whether it will happen. The question is when. For those who are, who are thieves and are greedy for gain. Verse 9, um, those who get evil gain for his house, evil, they're, they're not just gaining, and they don't just 
worship the gain. It's evil. Their means are evil. To set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. (laughs) He's safe from those who might retaliate. This person is safe from anyone who might say, okay, I'm going to get back at you. I'm going to get back and then some what you've taken from me. Woe to him who sets his house on high as a protection as though nothing bad will happen to him. Woe number three. Woe to him who builds a town with blood, with bloodshed. I'm going to build my town. I'm going to build my city. I'm going to build build whatever I want by shedding innocent people's blood. Woe to you, he says to the Chaldeans. They weary themselves for nothing, he says in verse 3. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him, verse 15, who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. He's talking about the Chaldeans again. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their own nakedness. They humiliate the people that they've conquered. They humiliated them, woe to them. And he says in verse 16, drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. What you have done to these innocent people, you're going to have done to you and more. The cup is in the Lord's right hand. It will come around to you. Wait for it. Just wait for it. Utter shame will come upon your glory. You think you're, you're strong now? You'll be utterly ashamed eventually, someday, in the Lord's timing, in the Lord's hand. It's true today. The fifth woe, verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise, idolatry. Well, woe to him who practices idolatry. Anything you place in your heart above the Lord and his relationship and your relationship with him is idolatrous. Anything that's more important to you. And you can tell what's most important important to you by how much you devote yourself to it. You can judge for yourself how important your relationship is with the Lord based upon what you do with the time he's given you. That's convicting for me, just as it's convicting, I'm sure, for you. I'm not even talking about the length of time and, you know, 10 minutes in the morning for devotions and aren't I a good boy or aren't I a good girl and that's it. No, no. The measure of our life is the um, exacting time and effort and, and pondering we make upon our Lord. Who He is, what He's done, what He wants of me, how He wants me to respond to people. Woe to the idolaters. Chapter 3, Habakkuk resorts to prayer. And again, look at, he reminds himself of who God is. Who is the question? And Habakkuk is rightly remembering who God is in the midst of all this trouble. O Lord, chapter 3, verse 2, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He's remembering and he's afraid, it seems to me, in a righteous way. He knows how dangerous God is. Good thing God is good. In the midst of the years, revive it. Revive your work, Lord. As I wait, as the years go by, as I wait for the execution of your decision of what you will do and who will you, uh, the Chaldeans that you'll use, um, revive your work. In the midst of the years, as I'm waiting, as we're waiting, make it known. In other words, as I'm, we're waiting all this time, uh, give, give us little tastes of your presence, Lord. That's what he's saying. Make it known. Make your work known to us. Help us to endure by your graciousness and your kindness to us. Give us a sign of your working. In wrath, Lord, remember mercy. Withhold from us what we deserve, that's mercy. Withholding from me what I deserve, that's mercy. Grace is giving me something good that I don't deserve. In your wrath, Lord, remember mercy, please, Habakkuk says. And he's going to go on in the next few verses talking about 
God's glory, His brightness like the sun, like the light rays flashing from His hand. His power is awesome. He stood and He measured the earth, verse 6. His were the everlasting ways. He saw the tents of affliction, in affliction. Verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers? Is God mad at the rivers? No. Is he angry against the rivers? No. Is he indignant against the sea? Well, no, he's not. When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, that's a key word, salvation. When he rode on his chariot, it was a chariot of salvation for people. Rivers don't need saving. The sea doesn't need saving. God made those for his glory. But he's coming back for salvation. He's working for salvation for the purpose of saving people from destruction. That's true for us. Verses 9 and 10 talk about the reaction of the creation to his awesome power. Raging waters. um, uh, The sun and the moon stood still in their place. The light of your arrows as they sped in the flashing of your glittering spear. He's marching through the earth in fury. Ugh. You thrust the nations in anger because they are rebellious, they're wicked. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people. Salvation is the purpose. Salvation of your people. Salvation of your anointed. That's the purpose. You crush the head of the house of the wicked. If you don't want God, we don't want God, okay. Every opportunity to come to God through Christ. You don't want him, you will pay the price. God is merciful, God is gracious, but God's patience will not endure forever. There will come a day when it's over. He will not forever strive with men and women. Verse 16, Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. He is I mean, I don't even have to explain. That's just pretty obvious. He is deeply shaken by what he's seen that God is doing and has done in the past. Despite this, listen to the second half of verse 16, Habakkuk 3, 16. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. I'm scared like never before. Rottenness, trembling, quivering, my legs are trembling beneath me. Even so, even so, Habakkuk says, I'm going to wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. God's going to do it in his own good time. This principle of waiting is really important. We ask him the best questions about who he is and secondarily, what do you want of me? What do you want? Uh, uh, the other uh, thing to do is to wait in faith, in, competent, in confidence, and in remembrance. We've talked about waiting in remembrance and waiting in faith, waiting in confidence. He says, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. He's not fretting. The Bible often says, don't fret because of evildoers. In other words, don't wring your hands and and bite your nails and just go absolutely out of your mind with fear. Don't fret. Why? Because we have a relationship to God. We have a relationship with God. If I die, I'll be with God. If I live, he will use me for some purpose. Don't fret. He told the psalmist, literally, that's the word, don't fret. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit, too, about Isaiah 7. This, is a, this principle of waiting in faith and in confidence was shown in Isaiah chapter 7, where the king of... Um, the king of Israel, Ahaz... I'm sorry, he's the king of Judah. Ahaz, the king of Judah, chapter 7, verse 1, is being threatened by two other kings. And these are powerful kings. They united together to destroy. They want to destroy this kingdom. And um, it says here in verse 2 that the heart of his people, of Ahaz and his people, shook like the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They are absolutely terrified. They shake and they can't escape it. They're terrified, petrified. You know what happens if these kings were to take over that kingdom? They won't be sent to a resort town. They're going to be brutalized. Brutalized like we don't know. Brutalized. That's why they shook like trees in the wind. 
So the Lord, he sees this in uh, King Ahaz, and he says to his prophet Isaiah in verse 3, he says, go, go to meet Ahaz. Isaiah, I want you to take your son and go and meet Ahaz. And here's where I want you to meet him. And here's what you want to say to him, verse 4. Say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. They think they're flaming towers of wrath. God says, no, no, no. Yeah, they may look like that to you, but you know what they really are? They're just they're smoldering and they're stumps. Don't be afraid. Be careful. Be quiet. Don't fret. Don't fear. Don't let your heart be faint. Be strong, Ahaz. You're the king. I got work for you to do, Isaiah says, through the, uh, to the, through the Lord, he says to uh, Ahaz. And he promises that their threats will not stand. Listen to verse 9 of chapter 7, Isaiah 7, 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. That's a word for us today. If you're not firm in faith, the conviction of things not seen. If you're not firm there, Ahaz, it's all lost. Because your faith is supposed to be rooted in me, God is saying. Not in anybody else. Not in your power. Not in your fortresses. Not in your weapons. Not in your armies. It's supposed to be rooted in me. And if you're not strong there, you're going to be lost. Now, I want you to notice something as well. Ahaz has an interesting response. He feigns righteousness. He pretends to be righteous. Ahaz says in verse 12, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. We're not supposed to put the Lord to the test. I'm not supposed to run out in traffic and pretend as though the Lord's going to protect me. That's putting the Lord to the test. He may take me out by a car. He pretends to have spiritual depth and maturity, and he says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test, which is exactly the wrong thing to do, Ahaz. And he pays a price for it. Again, though, we want to root ourselves in God's counsel through Isaiah to King Ahaz. Be careful. Be quiet. Don't be afraid. Don't fret. Don't let your heart be ill at ease because of these threats. These are small things, God says. Because they're small to me, God says, they should be small to you. Verse 16, back in Habakkuk, chapter 3, 16, Habakkuk again started saying, I am trembling, quivering, afraid, rottenness enters my bones, trembling legs. Yet, I am determined that I am going to quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. He waits in faith and in confidence in the midst of this trouble. He waits for God's answer. Verse 17, Habakkuk 3.17. Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. He's talking about the total loss of sustenance in this world. No Medicare, no Medicaid, no unemployment, no nothing. You lose your ability to eat. You lose your ability to make an income. You lose everything. What are you going to do? Verse 18. Yet, Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Wow. That's his choice. He's going to embrace God's ways. He embraces God's ways knowing that this world's goods are tenuous. It's as tenuous today as it was then. It's as frail today and fleeting today as it was then. Today I have the virus, tomorrow I've got the malaria, and tomorrow who knows? Today I lose my job, and tomorrow I lose my house, and then I lose my car, and then I lose what? What else could I lose? What kind of a person says, even if I lose everything, I will rejoice in the Lord? I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's what I've determined to do. Why? Because I know my Lord. I know my God, and I can trust Him. He's worthy of my devotion based upon what I've seen Him do in the past, based upon the word that I've seen and, and learned of in the Scriptures. That's a lesson for us. 
Hebrews 10, 32 to 36, and I'd never noticed this before. I just read through Hebrews recently. I had never noticed this before in this section. It never struck me before. But the writer of Hebrews talks about the price that people paid for coming to Christ. The, 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 the persecution and the ridicule and the horrible treatment that people gave them because they came to Christ. And he says they gladly gave up their possessions. These Christians in Hebrews, they gladly gave up their possessions as a price for faithfulness to Christ. And I thought, wow, really? What if, could I say that of myself? That if persecution comes to us, not that we would want them to take our stuff or our possessions or take our ability to do things and make a living and feed our families and feed ourselves and enjoy a life, what if that happened? Would I embrace it as the price and think of things eternally, that what we have going forward in the future is so much immensely eternally valuable than what we have here, no matter what it is? That's what Habakkuk is talking about. Even if I lose everything, I rejoice in the Lord, and I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. In verse 19, he closes. He says, God is, he says, God, the Lord, is my strength. Personal. He is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The deer is every motorcyclist's nightmare. Why? Because they're totally unpredictable jumping and running here and there. You never know where they're going to go. It, it reminds me of when, when, I was, uh, when my kids were younger, we used to watch Winnie the Pooh. And this is a silly illustration, but Tigger, if you know Winnie the Pooh, Tigger, his face is made out of rubber and his tail is made out of springs and he bounces everywhere. That's the picture here. Now, maybe I'm too old now to bounce like that, like a deer or like Tigger, but in my spirit, I'm not. In my spirit, as I age, the, older, the outer man is passing away, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. I can rejoice in the Lord because he's my strength. However, money, however many days he gives me or you, each of us, if we lean into him and ask, who are you primarily? He gives us strength, and we can rejoice despite what the world takes or what the girl, world gives. We embrace his ways. Now, where is Jesus in all this? Well, he's everywhere in all of this. Old Testament book, where is Jesus in all of this? Well, he's everywhere in all of this. Who wrote the scriptures through men? The things that were written before are written for our edification. They're written for our understanding. We believe in the triune God, that before Jesus came to earth as a baby, he existed in eternity past as the Logos of the Trinity. And you'll see a picture of the Logos of the Trinity, of the glorified Christ in the first chapter of Revelation. Take a look at that. Not now. But he's written this book through Habakkuk. Jesus is right there, the Logos of the Trinity. And as we cited before, there are three times when this, um, this admonition to walk by faith, the righteous shall live by faith, it's three times repeated in the New Testament. Jesus is all over this. The glory that God deserves as described in Habakkuk, is the glory that Jesus deserves from us today. Faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I'm reminded of Billy Graham when somebody sarcastically asked Billy Graham, you ever seen God, Billy Graham? And Billy Graham said, no, I've never seen God. I've seen the wind, and I've seen, no, I've, I'm sorry, I've never seen God. I've seen the effects of the wind. I've never seen the wind, but I've seen the effects of the wind. I've seen the effects of God. I've never seen God, just like I've never seen the wind, but the effects of God is like seeing the effects of the wind. There's a mystery to God. There's an awesomeness to God that we do not understand until we begin to walk and say, who are you? Ask the primary question. Leave the why answer, why question to him. The who question is what we need to ask. So ask good questions. God is sovereign. God is free. He uses sin sinlessly. God is worthy of our trust and our devotion. Ask him good questions. Who are you, Lord? And secondarily, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? Because I love you. Because you first loved me. Wait for his answer. In faithfulness, in confidence, in remembrance, embrace his ways and cling to Christ in this New Testament era. I'm reminded of Oswald Chambers, 
who confirms this principle of asking the right question of who God is. He said, you may be familiar with Oswald Chambers. He's an old, older saint who wrote many fine devotions. And he says, um, the one aim of the call of God is the satisfaction of God. One aim that we should have in the call of God is the satisfaction of God. That's the who question right there. It's the satisfaction of God. It's not so much a call to do something for him. That's not primary, that's secondary. It's not so much a call to me or to you to do something for God. We are not called to battle for God, but to be used by God in his battlings. He picks the battle, and he decides who's going to do what in his battle. That's what we are to do. But it springs out of this call of God to satisfy him alone. That's the order of things in this life. God is sovereign. He's the sovereign king. He is worthy of our trust and devotion. God is free. He's not bound like us to the earth and time. He is free. He will not sin, but he is free to use sinners, and he does that sinlessly. We ask good questions. Who are you, Lord? And then what do you want of me? We wait in faith, in confidence, in remembrance. We embrace his way, and we see Jesus in all of his dealings. One final word. For those young people here, we have a rich group of older folks who have walked with God for decades, multiple decades. It's a great privilege to have older people in this congregation who have walked with God for decades and have seen him work in pain, in difficulty, and watch them and listen to them as they endure suffering and trials today in health, in every way. Our culture does not value age at all very much, but God does. And God expects us to watch and see the older people in our congregation who have lived a life of devotion to him and learn from them. Learn from them as an example of how to walk by faith, in remembrance, and in confidence. Let's pray. Father, this is a beautiful morning, a beautiful day you've given to us. We're thankful for it. Lord, as we Consider the great truths and the great principles from your prophet Habakkuk. It is so applicable to today. What we learn from Habakkuk, from your word through Habakkuk, is how to live, how to walk in confidence and in relationship with you. You want so much for us to know who you are and trust you with the answers to our questions, not demanding to know why, 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 but who are you, Lord, and what do you want from me? What can I do because you first loved me and I love you after that? I pray, Lord, that the word of Habakkuk will be implanted in our hearts and minds so as we go through our lives, whether you give us a day or 50 years, that we will remember these principles and walk by faith, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Lord, press this into our hearts and minds, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.